0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight's, we look at an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from lived in or had some interesting history here in the city, about half of them. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. Believe it or not, they've been part of our city's landscape for more than two centuries. We've looked at the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, by the way, as much as I love both of them. I didn't put them together. Um, We've looked at our public library systems. We actually have three in New York. We have three public library systems. We visited the subway. We've looked at public art. We visited some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges, just to name a few. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can catch us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and some others I've not heard of before, but they're out there. Tonight is one of the special programs. We are going to be celebrating Black History Month, and unlike the episodes from a couple of years, past couple of years, we're going to look at some individual people, people who most New Yorkers and most people may not have heard of but who were very influential in some element of the city's history and also in our arts and and culture. My first guest is Eric K. Washington. He is a New York City-based independent historian and the owner of Tagging the Past, which reconnects forgotten history to present landscapes through articles, talks, and tours. Eric's many accomplishments include being a Columbia University Community Scholar, a CUNY Leon Levy Center for Biography Fellow and a Fellow in Residence of the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Eric's first book, Manhattanville, Manhattanville, Old Heart of West Harlem, inspired his interpretive signage in West Harlem Pierce Park, a design project which was awarded the 2010 Masterworks Award from the Municipal Art Society here in New York. Eric also collaborated on the production of the musical work, which we will be focusing on the second part of our show, uh, The Road We Came. Eric's latest book, which we're going to spend most of our time talking about this evening, is Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal. It's a biography of a once-influential Harlem Renaissance-era labor figure. The book was honored as winner of the Herbert H. Lehman Prize, was cited among Open Letters Review's 10 Best Biographies of 2019, and included in the Bowery Boys podcast 10 Favorite Books of 2019. And if that's not enough, just last night, Eric was awarded the Guides Association of New York City's annual Apple Award for Outstanding Book Writing for, guess what, Boss of the Grips. Talk about timing. It can't get much better than that for a timely introduction to a radio program. And it's my pleasure to welcome Eric K. Washington to Rediscovering New York. Eric, welcome to
1: the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Eric, i
0: like to ask most of my guests, especially professionals who have made the study and celebration of New York part of their work, if they're from New York originally or if they've come here from someplace else.
1: Both. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was born in Harlem on um, 110th Street, Cathedral Parkway, across the street from the park. Uh, it's no longer a hospital. It's now a condo. Um, but I was one of many of those um, families that... Um, they thought it they, you know, would be better to bring their kids to raise them in the suburbs. So we moved to Staten Island when I was three weeks old, kicking and screaming. Um, so my formative years were on Staten Island, which is still part of New York City. Um, uh, and I came back to Harlem in, when I was 16, and I lived other places as well, but... Uh, Harlem has, has has been my base for most of my life. Mm. And well, it, it, even while we were living there, most of my, you know, my grandparents, you know, I'm third generation Harlem. So, you know, the relatives were all were all here. So, Well, that's great. You
0: beat me. I've only lived in the neighborhood for seven years. I live on 130th <laughs> Street, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, I do want to spend most of our time together on the show speaking about your new book. But I did want to ask you briefly about your first book, Manhattanville, The Old Heart of West Harlem. I want to ask you what inspired to research and write it. I ask because when most people think about Harlem, the Manhattanville section doesn't command nearly the same attention as other parts of Harlem, like the central part of Harlem, which most people think of as as Harlem, um, Hamilton Heights and Sugar Hill, or even East Harlem. Uh, For our listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Manhattanville is the western part of Harlem and the southern part of Harlem. It's between St. Nicholas Park and the River and about below 133rd Street. What inspired you to write a book about Manhattanville?
1: Well, it's interesting. I was living in Manhattanville at the time. And for me, if if anybody asked, I was on team in place. It's this little street, um, one block south of 125th Street um, between Broadway and Riverside Drive. And uh, the Landmarks Preservation Commission was uh, about to landmark um, what is the oldest institution there, St. Mary's Episcopal Church. Um, And so I was approached to do the designation report. So that involved doing the history, not just of the church and putting it in context, but it was because I lived there. It was also my own neighborhood history. So I never thought of it as being Manhattanville. The li- um, the church has Manhattanville written on it. The, the junior high school has Manhattanville written in stone. Uh, the closest post office is called the Manhattanville Post Office. But I didn't make those connections until I, until I started doing the research on assignment. So they got their landmarking, and then I was hooked because... Uh, for the most part of the 19th century, it was as prominent as Greenwich Village or any other neighborhood. And it was usually spoken of in the same breath as Harlem. And what we, Harlem at the time, when you thought of it in the, up in, into, the, into the 19th century, was what we would call now uh, El Barrio, or East Harlem. So, so the kernel of the village, the concentrated village, was also a shorefront on the East River. And Manhattanville was founded on the Hudson River. So you had these two towns um, and they were, you know, when you spoke of, and both were so far removed from the rest of the concentrated part of the city. So they you, you were usually spoken of as Harlem and Manhattanville, um, but they were fairly distinct because the in-between was kind of, um, you know, kind of spare, not empty, but, but kind of spare and everything was concentrated around those those points. So that's how it came to. It it was, it was sort of just by accident of, of being offered an assignment to to do the research, and and I'm glad I did um, because it opened up my eyes. And a lot of I, I started doing tours as I was learning things with with my neighbors and saying, you know, guess who lived in your building, or guess huh? what it was, and, and so it just kind of grew from there into into the book.
0: Speaking of books, Boss of the Grips, your latest book, it's a moving story of determination, ambition. And someone who ended up being a pioneer in a number of ways and a leader, uh, not only of a community, but also of an institution uh, and certainly an unsung hero until your book was published. What what inspired you to write Boss of the Grips?
1: Well, it's interesting. I was um, I'm I'm a licensed New York City tour guide, so I was offered um, an opportunity to do tours of Grand Central um, as they were celebrating their centennial in 2013. And Grand Central, I, I know it's a great railroad station, but it wasn't my beat, and I kind of balked. Um, but they were, uh, the Municipal Art Society had gotten a contract to do daily tours. And then what happened was Hurricane Sandy. So the, tours, the tour training uh, kind of got sabotaged because a lot of the docents who were going to be leading the tours weren't in Manhattan, and they couldn't get in, in town. And so they contacted some of us who were regular guides for m- the Municipal Art Society. So I said yes. So I kind of boned up on Grand Central and I wanted to write something. I knew that there was a long history of African-Americans in the railroad. I didn't know precisely this. I knew about the sleeping car porters or the Pullman porters, as they were called. I think I'd heard of red caps and just kind of thought that they were the same thing interchangeably used. Um, so I wrote an article. I didn't want to write about the architecture because everybody else would be doing that. And I didn't realize I'd be hitting pay dirt because when I learned about the red caps, the first black red cap was at Grand Central. And if you think of say Central Park in relation to America's great parks, everything is kind of inspired or copied off of that template of Central Park. Well, Grand Central was that to American railroads, whatever they were doing there, everybody else started doing. So when they started their red cap program in 1895, Uh, which was all white, um, Penn Station started doing it and all the other stations along the New York Central's lines. And then across the country, it it, it started. Then in 1903, when my subject, James Williams, integrated it um, and it became all black within a year, everybody else pretty much started doing that with a few exceptions. Chicago was was mixed for a little while. If you see the movie North by Northwest Mm -hmm. and Cary Grant's running away and it's like, Oh there're white red caps there, so that in, in Chicago that's still existed so um, the inspiration was really just to do something other than pointing out what was on the script of the tour um, and it was fascinating because I find this guy who has he's he's obscure now, but he was really well connected and everybody knew him, and everybody knew him for one reason because he knew everybody, <laughs> and so it was really it was really uh, it was really great to to meet somebody like this, and then you're connecting with all these other people who are more familiar names today like like ropes and and adam Clayton Powell jr had who had done a little bit of time red capping you know to you know pay for their you know for school thanks to Williams hiring them also yes yes um
0: we're going to take a break in a minute, but I want to ask you you know what you know we 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 face discrimination in our society and there and there is racism in the United states the the job opportunities available to African-Americans, you know, 120 years ago would have been, you know, must have been really limited. What kind of jobs could African-Americans expect to get around 1900?
1: Well, this was the thing. Most of the jobs uh, that you could expect to get were service jobs. And around 1900, even this was changing because it was a great influx of European immigrants. And because... Racism has been, you know, part of the, the American fabric since since its beginning. So a lot of people were more comfortable hiring whites, where they would have had black servants, and so blacks were losing those losing those jobs. So being a, if you were male, a sleeping car porter working for the railroad, uh, riding the rails, or red capping became um, one of the very few opportunities. So this was why it was, while it was grunt work, it was it was still coveted. Um, by a lot of young, young Black men um, because, it, because the job opportunities were, the options were so limited. But it was also a way for them to kind of get a toehold into the Black middle class um, because it was regular. Uh, it was a struggle. You were working basically only for tips, um, not, not a salary. Um, but it was a way to get by and it had a certain kind of prestige because it was Grand Central Terminal. And you networked while you were working. You knew where people were going. You knew what people's tastes were. So there was a whole sort of uh, intercultural component that made it very, very uh, attractive. And that was one of the things that Williams helped to orchestrate very, very well. He he was particularly well-known and remembered for giving a lot of young Black college students work who would come on their breaks from, um, you know, all along the eastern seaboard, from southern states, Um, from New England's uh, schools and from local schools. And this was often the first time that a lot of these young black college students were meeting blacks from another area of the the country and were creating very, very strong social bonds there, but not exclusively. There were some people who who did the work, you know, while they were um, just, that was the work they did and, and they, and they, and they stayed on, but it was a particular thing that he was, kind of bent on because it was it was kind of, part of his activism was he knew where they what their goals were and that when they finish their schooling let them stay in school get their degrees and then they can come back and be of service to the community um and you had people from every discipline you know your doctors lawyers clerics artists broadway stars uh, athletes what have you
0: We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with author and historian Eric K. Washington, uh, whose book, Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams, has just won a prize from the Guides Association of New York City. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24
3: hours a day.
0: Everyone, we're back. This is Rediscovering New York. It's our 103rd episode. And tonight we're celebrating Black History Month in New York. And we're doing it through looking at some folks that uh, people may not have heard of before. My first guest is Eric K. Washington, who just wrote this great book called Called Boss of the Grips: The Life of James H. Williams, who was the chief attendant, also known as the chief red cap at Grand Central Terminal. Before we get back to the book, Eric, I want to ask you briefly. Um, you want to talk about tagging the past and what kind of offerings people can find with yeah. with uh,
1: tagging the past? Is sort of my personal uh, corporation. So it, um, it's it's a, a rubric I use for when I often give tours or um, particularly for, uh, private. Um, Arrangements, uh, contract with, with uh, school groups or other institutions or um, and um, talks tours presentations um, so it doesn't have like a, a, a schedule on my website you can see a lot of things that I, you know I've offered over the years um, so it's, it's 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 just that it's kind of a,
0: and what's what's the website address is it pastcom no
1: it's uh, oh. part of um, uh, ekwashington.com
0: okay Great. Well, getting back to to Williams, um, what was his journey to becoming chief attendant? How did he how did he manage to get the the top job of the Red Caps at Grand Central?
1: Well, it's interesting. He grew up. He was born uh, in New York. His, uh, he was this child of uh, two formerly enslaved uh, parents from Virginia. Um, and he was born on 15th Street. The house, the tenement is still there. Um I know, I know I couldn't afford to live in it now, <laughs> in what is now Chelsea. And um, like a It was lot- a different
0: place back then. then. Yeah. yeah. So born in
1: 1878. Uh, like uh, a lot of young people at the time, he worked as a kid. And uh, one of the things, it's not really clear who recommended him for the job. We know uh, we, that it must have been somebody of great influence uh, because he's going to be the first- African American who's going into this job so it my speculation is that it was this person who we worked for for many years this florist Charles Thorley who was one of the eminent preeminent uh, florists of the Gilded age um, and he was a, a floral messenger as far as it, up until like nineteen hundred for 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 Thorley so it's you know it's not a glamorous job but he's getting this whole supplementary cultural education by working for Thorley because He's delivering flowers, You know, he's you know, it's like kind of what we do now when you can wire flowers somewhere. Somebody orders flowers, and he would bring them. So, just like the pizza guy who comes to your door, you you open the door and he sees you know what you've got hanging on your walls. Uh, he might you might chat with him for a little bit. So he's learning all of this stuff about you know people's tastes, people's trends. He had only really to look into. Thorley's ledger to see what kind of flowers people were ordering for what kind of occasion. Um, who was this person, a diplomat, um, somebody courting someone. So he's getting this whole really interesting cultural education and he's also learning the city, uh, because he's making deliveries, uh, constantly. So he's got his groundwork. So I'm think, I think this was really one of the things that, um, by the time that grand central is deciding that they want to overhaul their system of all white red caps into all black red caps, which would really match the, the sleeping car porters, um, that he's a perfect candidate. He has a good temperament. He has a sense of tact. Uh, he's good with people. He's used to talking to people. And I, you know, there might've been some other people, but my, my best bet is that this florist Charles Thorley would, would have been the one to recommend him there. And, um, uh, he He ends up you know being a, a major figure in this job everybody knows him around the city for you know the rest of his life until he dies in
0: nineteen forty eight did Williams face any racism particularly from people in Grand Central who would have been um, um, either above him in the hierarchy, did he did, did he encounter difficulties in with racism and being able to do his job or do the work that 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 he did in bringing on so many people to to be attendants?
1: Yes, I mean, uh, yes. Um, much of it was indirectly because he's the, he was management, but he's management of what is the lowest echelon, this department, the red cap uh, in in Grand Central, and yeah. the racism was part of the you know the the, the the structure because you it was the only job that you could have if you were black so you couldn't be promoted up into the system uh, so when the when the whites left they could be promoted into other departments and this was not an option for the black so the whole system was sort of on you know a jim crow um sort of a, a trap um it is what yeah, and my objective wasn't really to celebrate the work, but to ce- celebrate the resilience and the innovation that he and uh, was was able to oversee and inspire um, and conduct for his men to get by. You know, one of the things that, that really started to get when I was trying to get a bead on him was when he first is is made um, the chief attendant. He starts as a regular red cap in in 1903. And um, in 1909, six years later, he's made chief attendant. And one of the first things he does um, is he has the men come down to this church for this big meeting. Um, there have been some accidents, uh, particularly one guy has has died. He's gotten knocked off onto the train, train tracks. His own daughter is in the hospital. And... Um, It becomes very clear because they're building Grand Central Terminal, what we know today, over the old Grand Central Station. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, you're going through and, you know, being told, oh, you know, I know you usually go this way. We're going to go this way, you know, because this is cut off. So it becomes very apparent that um, they're very vulnerable. They are expendable. They don't have um, insurance. Uh, their kids are going to get sick. Some of them are going to die. And so he starts, he establishes this attendance beneficial association. It's like this mutual aid uh, society. Uh, it kind of operates ra- almost like a, a membership a club. You put in money in this way if somebody gets sick or, you know, your wife is pregnant or um, you're laid off for a while or, or you have to pay for a funeral. There's money in the pot to help to sustain that. And this was my first taste of his of his leadership. And he, and he does this you know, very soon after he gets this position, I like to think of it as being an activist, also. <laughs> yes, and it is kind of activism because it's it, it's a it's a different it's a different take. Uh, I know most of us are familiar with, say, A. Philip Randolph who organized um, the Pullman Porters, the sleeping car porters, in 1925. Um, he's sort of a generation before then, so the activism in this sense was getting everybody's foot in the door and getting the jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, because these were hard to come by and sort of owning the department. And, you know, at the time he could have, he could have not done it. He I, I, I think his position would have been, there's nothing in writing to, to say what he, what he thought, or what he didn't record this. Um, but I think the, the attitude would have been, we know what's being offered. We could take it or leave it. Let's take it and see what we can do. And that's what he did. And as I say, as soon as he was hired within months, within a year, it was, it was all black.
0: And William has moved up to Harlem. When did he, when did he move to Harlem?
1: Well, that was interesting. He was, uh, so in 1903, he gets this, uh, he, this job. And he appears to have moved up to Harlem right about then. And he's a celebrity because he's you know the one black guy who's got this position. He's in charge. And he's in charge at various times from anywhere from a dozen to 500 men at Grand Central. And he's worked for Charles Thorley, who's famous. So everybody, so he's somebody, even though he's moved up there and he's on a block where a lot of people don't know him, they want to know him. (laughs) He's the guy who works at Grand Central. So he moves up there about then. So he's part of that first discernible wave of African-Americans who are moving up to Harlem uh, before we start speaking of the Great Migration. Um, So he's part of that very first wave that starts moving in and um, inhabiting all of these, you know, overbuilt, you know, the speculative building that was had been going on as a result of um, the railroad that was about to, uh, the, the, um, I'm sorry, the subway that was about to open in 1904. So um, that first group he's a part of. And he's immediately tapped in another sense of activism, um, which we know less about because the nature of it tends to be fairly secretive, but the the um, fraternal, fraternal orders and Masonic Uh, orders. So he's tapped for those um, because he's a person of influence. Uh, He's sort of this middleman. He works in this space in Midtown, um, but he's living uptown. He has this this ability to be able to get work for people. Uh, And he knows people because everybody who's traveling, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, and going in this direction at Grand Central they are greeting him so he's meeting the other thing that he was famous for besides the students was making these connections with people like all the roosevelts um opera singers um uh, senators you know uh, congressmen uh, that sort of thing and cultivating these relationships mm-hmm. that he's able able to and that then and some of them are casual but many of them are much more profound so he's able to rely on them when there are certain Crises. I have in the book. You uh, may have noticed this letter that he writes to Cardinal um, Cardinal Hayes uh, in regards to um, his son Wesley, who was New York Manhattan's first black uh, fireman. And uh, there was some pushback about his getting a promotion as lieutenant. And um, that's when Williams's talents kind of go into play, and he contacts the, the the people he knows, and to great effect. So you know, it worked out.
0: We have about a minute left, Eric, I and mean, time goes so fast on this program. Uh, Amazing yeah. how it goes, how fast it goes when you're talking about something really substantive, especially someone who was such an important part of, of of their world. What other organizations outside of Grand Central was Williams part of? And do you want to talk, you know, for a minute about racial
1: uplift? Well, the racial uplift was the urgent theme of the, of, of the time. And there was a sort of a great, you know, effort to create these, uh, sort of a protean world of these societies and organizations uh, mm-hmm. that mirrored the organizations that blacks were kept out of. So um, he was part of all of that. He was very much involved with the NAACP. Uh, he organized an orchestra at Grand Central Terminal that was actually sort of uh, went on tour for the NAACP um, for several months. Um, he was very, very active uh in the war effort during World War One, and buying liberty bonds, his department raised more money than any other par- department in Grand Central. And it was written about him going over the top and being able to do this. So he was really connected to a lot of these things in different areas, whether it was for the war or social things. I, I mentioned the, the fraternal groups um, that uh, were often about, you know, having affairs that were benefits for an orphanage or, or a school or that sort of thing. So he was very much connected to the, the community fabric in Harlem as much as he was uh, an administrator in his department at Grand Central.
0: Well, great. Eric K. Washington, thank you so much for being our guest on this first part of our celebration of Black History Month on this edition of Rediscovering New York. Eric's book Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams is published by Liveright Publishing, which is a division of W.W. W. Norton and & Company, and for which he just won the, um, say, Best Book Award from the Guide Association of New York City, and that was just last night. Eric, thanks so much for being a guest
1: on the program. Thank you for inviting me. It's a
0: We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with two people who are creating a very special project in celebration of African American New Yorkers. We'll be back in a moment.
5: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC Uplift, Educate, Empower.
0: back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, Mortgage Specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give him a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212- 495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at Jeff Goodman, NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at Well, our second guests are the creators of an opera celebrating Black New Yorkers uh, through opera. Uh, The opera company is called Onsite Opera. For those of you who don't know of it, it produces site-specific operas in non-traditional venues throughout the city. By staging each opera in an environment specific to the piece, Onsite Opera surrounds the audience and artists in the music and drama of the story, amplifying the connection between the world of the opera and the reality of the audience. To date, Onsite has produced operas in more than a dozen unique venues, and I'm proud to say I've been to some of the productions, and we'll be speaking to the creators of the latest creation, which will be premiering in June. It's called The Road We Came. Our two guests, Eric Einhorn. Eric is the co-founding general and artistic director of the company. Uh, Eric's complete list of engagements and accomplishments in the wonderful world of opera, as I say, are too long to go through and still have considerable time to talk about his latest, latest project at Onsite. Uh, but just to name a few, he uh, include the Glimmerglass Festival, Lyric Opera of Chicago, and The Met here in New York. Where he has served on the directing staff since 2005. Recent projects include his Lyric Opera of Chicago debut staging Hansel and Gretel and a subsequent return to the company to direct E Puritani and the world premiere of The Property. It's a klezmer opera for which he was also adapter. Eric is a past winner of the National Opera Association's scholarly paper competition and is a frequent contributor of book reviews to the National Opera Association's Opera Journal. He holds a Bachelor of Music degree in opera directing and voice performance from the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. And our second guest from the company is Ryan McKinney. Ryan is a bass baritone. He's been called one of the finest singers of his generation and is celebrated by Opera News, has a voice that drips with gold. That's a direct quote, by the way. <laughs> like Eric's accomplishments, Ryan's are too long to detail and still have enough time to talk about The Road We Came. But he a very short list. In the 2018 and 19 season, Ryan made two important role debuts, the title role in Don Giovanni at Houston Grand Opera and Voton in Das Rheingold at Opera de Montréal, two of my favorite operas, by the way. Last season, Ryan made his role and house debut at the Lyric Opera of Chicago's new production of Dead Man Walking. With many of the world's opera and concert venues closed due to the global pandemic, Ryan adapted the beauty of his art to the film screen. At the beginning of quarantine, he founded Keep the Music Going Productions, where he and a group of renowned artists shared videos both live and recorded to raise funds for the fantastic relief organizations that provide financial support to artists during this very challenging time. Among Ryan's works are a short film, a Glimmerglass Leader, where he showcased Schubert Leader against the stunning backdrop of Ostego County and the Glimmerglass Festival campus. I love Schubert, by the way, and I'll have to see that. Eric and Ryan, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. I want to ask you both just a a question before we talk about the road we came. Eric, at what point in your career did you envision the creation of your own opera company?
2: Uh, That's a very good question. Um,
0: I ask good questions.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Being a director there there's there's an inherent um entrepreneurial side of it all and um the the idea for for starting on site came out of a point in my career where i was looking for a different kind of creative outlet i had great success and been very fortunate working at some incredible opera companies with wonderful colleagues but there was something that i as a director was still looking to um to express and um Foolishly thought, well, starting an opera company is the easiest thing to do to uh, to make that happen. And my colleagues and mentors, who I expressed that to at the time, um, wished me all the best and uh, condolences for uh, for the decision I was about to make. So, but it has been uh, Onside celebrates its tenth anniversary next year, and uh, it's been the ride of my life. It's I, uh, I'm incredibly lucky to work with amazing people um, year after year, and uh, just keep on keep on having fun. Mm.
0: Ryan, how did you first become involved with
4: OnSite? Well, I had been, uh, as you said, working on these, uh, sort of pivoted from being a singer to a filmmaker pretty quickly, which was an interesting experience. And um, I am friends with Kenneth Overton, who is the star of this uh, show that we're working on called The Road We Came. And Kenny and I uh, got together. I was sort of calling all of my friends. I have all of these really amazing uh friends from being a singer and he's one of them and i said hey should we do a thing together and i uh, had this idea that maybe we would do uh, initially thinking of maybe some spirituals because kenny has a spirituals album out and that's really amazing he's fantastic um in in historically important places in new york city and i called uh chris staub who is Eric, you have to help me out. I remember what his actual title is. He does all of the things at uh, on-site Opera. Maybe all the things. Yeah. Um, he's,
2: yes, he's he's our amazing director of production in artistic operations.
4: Yeah, he's a very good friend of mine, and and um, I've worked with him a lot in different opera companies. And Eric Einhorn and I had worked together too. And I mentioned this to Chris, this sort of idea, and he said, "I think that's something that this that could be interesting." Um, and then so so Eric Einhorn and and I and and Kenny and my wife, Tanya, who also works on all of these things with me, um, got together and put, put our heads together and created this uh, um, pretty what's been a really interesting journey that's sort of taken us through the last, I don't, I don't know, nine or 10 months. So even just that has been really amazing. Um, and then, of course, bringing Eric a. Washington on. Um, yeah, it's been it's been really wonderful. So that's kind of how it got started
0: what is the road we came what is it about what is the what is the what can yes. people expect if they if they if they actually go on the go on the production i,
4: I guess i'll take that one although any of us could we're also immersed <laughs> in this um it is a musical walking tour of black history in new york city and it stars the amazing bass baritone kenny overton and also um is narrated by eric k washington and also Curated the particular sites that um, it takes you along and the history behind that is has was all put together by Eric K. Washington. And it so it's filmed. So when you get to these places, you will watch Kenny sing um, some amazing pieces, uh, almost all of them composers of color. Um, And it's uh, I'm the one filming it. My wife and I are filming it. And it's. Um, yeah, I think it will really be a treat for people, a lot of repertoire that you probably didn't know about a lot of history that you didn't know about, and you'll actually get to be in those places, which of course, in these times, it's really special to have a interactive arts, uh, experience because of course we can't be in the theater. Like we're all, um, we all love to do in, in the before times. (laughs) Did the major, go ahead. Sorry.
2: Uh, Sorry. Just to, just to add that the, um, the experience is all through a mobile app that uh, audiences can use as they walk around. But the great thing about it is that you don't have to be in New York to experience it. You can have the same experience of going on a virtual tour no matter where you live. So it's available to audiences around the world.
0: And, of course, much better sound quality with uh, headphones in uh, a mobile device than uh, <laughs> watching it on a laptop. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you guys: Did the idea of creating the road we came did it did it come did it start before the pandemic, or or was it something that was impacted by the pandemic?
4: It it was actually definitely from the pandemic. Um, I had known Kenny before um, he was in a a show that I was in in San Francisco called um, "The Girls of the Golden West" by John Adams, and. Um, I called him and we you know, were trying to think of things we could do together. Initially, I thought only filmed. And then uh, it wasn't until we really brought it to um, on-site opera that, mm-hmm. that Eric Einhorn had the amazing idea to really make it a full walking tour with an app and all of that. So um, it was definitely with the pandemic in mind, although both Kenny and I have been talking for years and have been working on different projects trying to highlight Um, composers of color and, and singers of color and, and all of that. So um, in that sense, it had been going on since before the pandemic started, but really in the, the nuts and bolts of what it is, I think it was sort of tailor-made for this time.
0: Mm. I want to ask you a, a question before we take a, take a short break. Um, I've been to on-site productions and even when there haven't been a lot of people, there's still, you're still part of a community. There are still people around, you know, given that the stage is on the street and you could uh, be literally be physically distant from people. I mean, you could literally be six feet away and have 30 or 40 people around on a block or a street corner. What was the um, impetus behind doing a self-guided tour instead of the usual bringing people together, even doing it physically distant that OnSite usually does?
2: It, uh, it was it was not an easy decision, I can, I can tell you that, that, um, that we at, at OnSite, and I know uh, so many of the artists we work with and audiences, we all thrive in this environment where we can be together and have that sense of community. And I think that's what we are missing greatly right now in the pandemic. Uh, but when we started talking about this nine or ten months ago, Um, there was something that I, I kept on bringing up, um, which I (laughs) eventually have let go of, um, sadly because of the current realities, which is, um, I was hoping by summer of 2021, we would be in a position to do live performances and recreate this project as a promenading, uh, walking tour with a live guide with live performance. Uh, but given where we are given, um, Patron anxiety, understandably so, about returning to group performances. Uh, New York City's own regulations about um, congregating and performance, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the uh, the the data that is still uh, sort of a moving target around singing and transmission of, of COVID. Um, it just for for the planning process and for um, for creating something that uh, we could really produce at the highest quality. Um, we, we stuck to this film uh, version because of the work that Ryan and Tanya do is, is so incredible. And being a singer, Ryan um, uses all of that toolbox uh, in his film work to, in a way that a, a non-singing filmmaker just, just can't even touch.
0: Well, not just a singer, but a bass baritone. Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come, I'm partial to bass baritones, obviously. We're going to take a a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Eric Einhorn, Ryan McKinney, and Eric K. Washington, who's also here in the studio. Uh, We will be back in a moment.
5: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
0: we're back on the special edition of rediscovering new york my guests on the second part of the show uh, celebrating black history month are eric einhorn and ryan mckinney of on-site opera um guys i want to ask you um what are some of the places where the work takes place where can people expect to actually walk when they uh when they participate in this program
4: um, so this is a, <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it centers around three, uh, parts of Manhattan. So there's an, an upper Manhattan tour, a mid, uh, midtown tour and a lower Manhattan tour. Um, and, um, the, the places that you'll, you'll go are both places that you know already like Carnegie hall, for example, or Lincoln center, um, places you probably know if you're uh, a New Yorker, like uh, the Schomburg. Um, but then there's there's places that you you will know the people involved in them, like um, Langston Hughes's house, for example. Um, but you probably have walked by it if you if you live in that neighborhood and and never noticed it. Um, there's a little plaque on the wall, but besides that. Um yeah, uh you could walk right by it. Um so it's really a, a mix of of thing all places that feel very New York. Um and then learning of what happened in, in those places really makes it take on a, a whole new life.
0: How did you who were some of the other historical figures that uh you you include? Langston Hughes, obviously. Um Yeah. Is, so Is Schaumburg also one of the people who Arturo Schomburg is
4: well, we have a whole because of the, the the Schomburg Center being such an amazing place for Black history. Um, one of our that that's just one of one of the sites. Um, and um, yeah, so I mean, we have a lot of uh, sections about the Underground Railroad, for example. So there's um, some interesting information on Frederick Douglass, and um, there's um gosh I feel, i'm staring at at eric k washington right now thinking i should just let this guy rip because he's if you ever get him going on these topics it's uh, quite he a sight to behold
0: Well, let's talk about the music for a second. What are some of the, the, it's sort of a two-part question. What are some of the musical works that are included? And also I want to ask you, in keeping with OnSite's tradition, I should say exemplary tradition, because I've been lucky enough to actually see and hear some of the music. Did you commission any of the music that is in the production?
2: We did not. There was a lot of discussion um, in this uh, very robust and great collaborative process over over the last 10 months about what repertoire do we include um, whether uh, wanting to focus on um, African-American composers and poets um, we I think we we have achieved that with the exception of uh, Vincent humans as the one um, white composer uh, but otherwise it's all it's all pre-existing material um, because there is so much that um, needs amplification, needs a spotlight shown on it. And this, this seemed like the, the a great opportunity to do that. Um, at the same time, we wanted to try and um, to serve both things and um, bring some new music into the world. And so um, we um, we've commissioned two new arrangements of, of some pieces. Um, one, uh, is by uh, Damien Jeter, and one arrangement is by uh, James Davis. Um, so they're new versions of old pieces. Um, so we, we we do a little bit of both.
4: Mm-hmm. And I ask also you on, uh, one, sorry, I was just going to no, jump in to go, say go that sure, yes, yes. one of the amazing things mm-hmm. is that the the scope in terms of history of the black composers included, you know, is, is pretty incredible when you look at like Florence price and, um, Margaret bonds all the way through lots of living composers, actually. Um, even though there's not a lot of, of new music, you know, there's, uh, Lori Hicks and Roland Carter and, um, just a lot of really, even within the community of black composers, there's an incredible diversity, of musical styles and eras. Um, And so I think that's really one of the amazing things about uh, the music choices.
0: How do you think uh, Filming hasn't started yet. It's going to uh, start relatively soon. Um, how do you think that Ryan's approach to filming is going to impact the production? And I know I'm uh, sort of asking, uh, setting up big expectations about this, but I, I think it's a really important question when talking about the, this production, which is going to be um, monumental, but it's also going to be something very, very, very new and that people haven't seen before.
2: Yeah, I think uh, what's what's really exciting for us at OnSite um, is is the potential for what these films can be, that while there is typically at an OnSite production or at any opera company, you're dealing with an opera that has a single story that you're following through the course of your experience, but the story we are telling is that of Black history in New York. Um, and it, 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 certainly with with what Eric Washington has brought into this, it's there are touch points well outside of New York. So you're connected to this greater network of history. Um, and I, and I think in our discussions, what, what I'm excited about is, is seeing how Ryan is going to weave that thread through the, through the, the filming, which are three different tours, uh, three different neighborhoods, five to six different stops per neighborhood. So you're looking at a lot of, um, a lot of film and um finding ways to to think micro about the actual place where you are and the, the incredible details of new york architecture but then literally and figuratively zooming out to the greater picture of the african-american experience uh, around these songs around the poetry around the, uh where we are in history at, a, at various points so it's a lot to it'll be these jam-packed um filmic moments that are really exciting
4: I think also it can be sometimes when you say, you know, walking tour, people can have a sense that it's a little bit um, intellectual. But, you know, with this music that is involved really tells the emotional story first. Um, and so that's kind of my whole interest as a filmmaker being a singer, too, is like to bring that across that part of Kenny that is taking that emotion that's inside him and putting it in his voice and trying to get that through the screen and through the headphones of the person listening to it um, is really my primary interest.
0: Well, guys, this has been a fascinating conversation, but it's not as untypical when we really delve into things. We're out of time. Um, one more question. How can people find out about this production? How can people actually order it and get excited about, uh, about going to see it and participate in it? They can,
2: they can go to the Onset Opera website, which is www.osopera.org, and right on the homepage, there's a banner link to the production page. Uh, tours are on sale now, and um, the they go live via the app on May 1st. Uh, and anyone who purchases will receive a, an email automatically on May 1st, giving them access. Uh, and tours are live until July 31st.
0: Mm. Well. I haven't seen it yet, and I wholly endorse it. I'm a big fan of on opera, and I'm really excited to, to, to participate in this new program. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. My guests on the second part of the special for Black History Month are Eric Einhorn and Ryan McKinney of on opera, joined by Eric K. Washington, who collaborated on this amazing project and who's the author of the award-winning Boss of the Grips. Uh, thank you, guys, for being on the show. Well, we've just finished the show. If you have questions or comments about our episode, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, Mortgage Banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the amazing Sam Lebowitz, Our production assistant is Leah. Our special consultant for the show is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
5: Broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on TalkRadio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's 7 o'clock. Every Thursday evening, the Mind But Pine Leadership, you on talk Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast Wise Content Gigs Wealth.